Thank you, Pastor. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. Uh, again, my name is Eric Johnson with Mormonism Research Ministry. One of the things that we do, we have twofold objectives. One is that we do a lot of evangelism, and we're going to be doing that this next month. Uh, Five-week open house, we're going to be here for three of the five weeks. We have put a lot of our energies and resources into this particular temple. We think it's an important temple because it's in an LDS community that hasn't had a temple. And so, so that's why we have decided to do that. We're not even going to go to Mesa where they're reopening a temple at the same time. So I'm going to be telling you tonight about the temple. And that's the second objective is informing Christians as to what Mormonism really teaches. And the temple is one of those things that's kind of hard to get your hands around. Have you been seeing the media reports on TV and in the front page paper today, in the newspaper, had a big, huge article. And if you don't know very much, you, you have to ask yourself, what is this all about? Well, in the next hour, you're going to learn a lot of what is going on in there, what will go on in there, not so much during the open house. They do have an open house. Usually it's only about three weeks, but this one is for five weeks. They're expecting 300,000 people. It was sold out yesterday, and it was busy the entire day yesterday. Saturdays are always going to be a busy day. But their hope is to show off their building to the community. Does anybody know how much this building costs? Because I don't. They usually don't tell the media what the building costs, but you know that building costs uh, many millions of dollars. And so it's a very impressive building, and we'll talk about temple tours. Some of you may want to go. Some of you may not want to. But my main objective here is to explain to you, without trying to be, um, uh, I guess, sensational, or I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to tell you exactly what happens there. And if there was a Latter-day Saint here, probably they should not be here, because I'm going to be talking about some of the things that are sacred to them, what I call secret. In fact, you can go to our website, sacredorsecret.com. We actually have website signs we'll be holding up out there. And uh, uh, that website has a lot of information, as well as this PowerPoint, sacredorsecret.com, at the very top. So you don't have to feel like you have to take pictures or do any uh, note-taking if you don't want to. But it's a lot of information. Are you ready for this? It's going to go fast. So to get the information in, here we go. So uh, next slide there. Uh, this is a picture of the Pocatello Temple from right in front of where the sign is, and the temple's in the background. And I take a close-up picture. Who is that person there? The angel Moroni. Next slide. Uh, this Moroni is the last, according to Mormonism, he's the last surviving Nephite of the American continent. What is that all about? I, don't, I can't spend too much time talking about the Book of Mormon, but there were two people groups here on the American continent called the Lamanites and the Nephites. Came, they came originally from Israel in 600 BC. A man named Lehi came here, and those were his two sons. And they had two people groups of people. And in the 400, about 421 AD, uh, the last surviving uh, uh, Nephite the good people, was this person called Moroni, and uh, his dad was Mormon, and so the Book of Mormon. This is Mormon's the one who compiled the plates. Moroni was his son, and he buries the plates uh, on, in the hill Cumorah. That would be his claim to fame, and he's the one that went to the founder of this church, Joseph Smith, and told him that the plates were there in 1823. This is how the story goes. And then for the next four years, he allowed Joseph Smith on September 22nd, which is an occultic holiday, 
And every year he would go and visit. And then finally in 1827, Joseph Smith was allowed to, uh, to, to um, take the place. But for, for those four years, it was every year getting to visit them. So he is very important in Mormonism. If you see some of the guides, they might even have a pin on their lapel uh, that will be uh, a representative. It's to us like the cross. Uh, Moroni is very special for them. And so that's why he is on top there. It's a big deal. Uh, another picture at night. This is uh, what it looks like at night. Uh, these are pictures that the church provides to the media. And, uh, and so they'll give you the very best look. So I, I don't know if you'll ever get a chance to go there. But they built up on a hill. And you can see that from the 15 pretty easily. If you're driving by, you just take a look. And there it is. Uh, I had a chance three weeks ago to go inspect things over there. And uh, I kind of have an idea of how they're going to do their open house. Uh, I haven't been to the open house yet. We're going to start tomorrow, but uh, that is what it looks like. Let me give you some statistics, uh, basic simple stats. The temple is a place where work is going to be done. It's going to be accomplished. Uh, the goal in Mormonism is to get to the very best this religion has to offer, which is called the celestial kingdom. The celestial kingdom is where a person can attain godhood or exaltation, and the temple is a requirement for a person to go to, to get married in, for both time and eternity, and then to do work on behalf of dead people. Now, this is not a place of worship per se. They don't do church services here, but they're open Monday through Saturday. They're even closed on Sundays, which shows you that this is not a place that they would be doing church services, uh, uh, just something that a lot of people don't know. They think, well, this is where they worship. Uh, there are 168 total temples in the world. And as uh, it was just um, in 1993 when I did my first temple outreach, and I've done over 25 of these in different cities all across America, even in England. I, I was at the Preston Temple. We make uh, the temple open houses a big deal because a lot of people are going to be coming, like yourselves, who may not have any idea what Mormonism is. And that's why we're going to be handing out this newspaper. Uh, and I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. It's on the back table. But we produce this, uh, try to make it look as good as possible for color. Uh, and we will be putting these on houses all in the area. We're going to do some door-to-door. -door, and we're also going to be standing outside the temple with these papers and hoping to give some of those out. So, and by the way, if we have extras, if you knew some Latter-day Saints you'd like to offer it to, they might not take it because they might call it anti-Mormon literature. I don't like that term, but that's what they might say. Uh, but you can take a few extras if you would like to hand them, or to some Christian friends who might like to see that. And it's also available on our website, sacredorsacred.com. There's a link there you can click, and you can see the PDF of that. So 168 operating temples. San Diego was number 45. Think about that. 45 in 1993, they have, uh, they have built... Um, what, four times as many temples, 168. Uh, 43 are currently under construction. And they're going to be, they just announced 20 at the last general conference in April, uh, the most that have ever been announced. Russell M. Nelson is the president and prophet of this church. He's 96 years old, and he's big on temples. And so they plan that uh, 41 are announced. The construction has not started. They're having 250-plus temples in the next six years. So from 45 in 1993, my first temple outreach that I ever did, now they're going to have up to 250 plus 
So they're taking this very, very seriously. They want to scatter the globe with temples because in this temple is where special work is going to be done. And the hope is that when the millennium happens, everybody will have their work done for them for the dead. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But most of the work that's done there is not for living people. It's done by living people on behalf of those who are already dead. Here's another picture of the temple. And let me just tell you a little bit about the Pocatello Temple. It's the second... I don't know why I put Utah. Uh, it would be the next uh, one. It should be... is the sixth temple in Idaho and will be officially the 170th temple. So this is number 170 uh, as far as temples go. Uh, one is being opened up here in the next few weeks and uh, in Canada. And so this will be number 170. They had the groundbreaking on March 16, 2019. You probably remember seeing the news accounts. It was front page news uh, that they, uh, they broke the ground. Uh, Taysom Hill from the New Orleans Saints, he's... Uh, uh, I guess a running back, and so he gave the opening prayer. It was a big deal because he's a Latter-day Saint. He, come, he came from BYU. Uh, the Pocatello Temple will, uh, will be dedicated on November 7, 2021. Again, the media goes gaga over all of these things. They'll have three sessions that will be led by Senior Apostle M. Russell Ballard. So it's a real privilege, according to the Mormons, for there to be a temple in Pocatello because before, people who want to do this work had to either go up to Idaho Falls, which is what, 45 minute drive or so, or they had to go, um, they had to go south to Brigham City. Those would be the closest uh, temples that a lot of your friends were probably going to. So they're very excited that this is in their backyard and they don't have to travel very far because this is a place they're supposed to go to about once a month. And, and to do the work. This building is about 68,000 square feet. There are four instruction rooms, four ceiling rooms. I'll tell you about those in just a few minutes. Uh, so it is a very big building, and when you go through it, some of you have already been through it, it's the finest materials, marble, and those of you into construction and architecture, you're gonna be wowed, because they put a lot of time, effort, and money for this special building of theirs. Uh, the next slide is, and I know it's hard to see. I'm sorry this is so small. You may have to go online to see this later. But let me just tell you real quick about what's called the Mormon plan of salvation. According to Mormonism, there's a little saying that was created by the fifth president, Lorenzo Snow. Same position that Russell M. Nelson has today, and he's the 17th president. But it's, it goes like this. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may be. And according to Mormonism, and if you, if you get a chance to see this slide a little closer, um, God the Father was once a human on another world. And that would be nearest to Star Kolob, is what some of the earlier leaders had said. We don't know where that is, but he lived somewhere on another world. If you ask your Mormon friends about that, they'll say, we just don't know very much about this. But that is the case. God has a body of flesh and bone. He does not have spirit. Uh, John 4, 24 says that God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and truth. But in Mormonism, he has a body of flesh and bone. He may have been a sinner. In fact, we have uh, a website, GodNeverSinned.com. GodNeverSinned.com, we interview a number of Mormons and we ask, do you believe that God was once a sinner? And we have found about 80% of all Latter-day Saints are agreeable that that's a possibility. Because he had to die somehow. And, there, and God the Father is just like us. As man is... 
God once was. He died. He became the God of this world. He brought his wife with him and wives because polygamy is in the heavens. In fact, polygamy used to be here on the earth until uh, it was taken away in 1890. Well, then uh, all spirits were created uh, with God and his wives, including you. All of us were in what's called the pre-existence or pre-mortality or the first estate. So all of us lived. We don't remember this, but when we were born, we forget. We forgot what exactly took place. But uh, what happened was Jesus is the firstborn, and he, Jesus, uh, had a plan of salvation. Uh, and then Lucifer was another brother, and he says, no, I want to be the savior of the world. And so there was this competition, and we were all there. It's called the council in heaven. Uh, Heavenly Father said, okay, give your plan. So Jesus says, well, I want to give agency to everybody. They can make their choice. Lucifer said, no, I want everybody to choose Heavenly Father's plan. We're going to force that decision on them. Well, that didn't go over very well because that was not the right choice. But we had a choice as spirit children what we were going to do with that. Well, one-third of the spirit children chose Lucifer. Two-thirds chose uh, Jesus, the one-third were cast out of heaven and became the demons and Satan became Lucifer, or Lucifer became Satan. Do you know what you chose? Anybody have an idea what you guys chose? You guys chose Jesus. Isn't that great? You chose Jesus because how do I know that? You have a physical body which was necessary to be able to progress. So here you are on the second estate, earth, that's the left-hand corner, and when you die... The goal is to be a good Mormon, but when you die, you're going to go to one of two places. It's either going to be spirit paradise or spirit prison. Now, where do you think you're going to go? If you're not LDS and you're not a good LDS, then you're going to go to spirit prison. You're going to be locked up there. Uh, spirit paradises are for the good Mormons. And so what will happen is work will be done in a temple on earth. Baptisms will take place. And the hope is, and everybody here, by the way, will get this work done for them. Uh, uh, during the millennium, that's why they're building so many temples. They feel the millennium is coming soon. They've got to get these ready for all the work that will happen over the thousand years. And then that work will be done so you'll have missionaries come and visit you. I have Mormon relatives on my wife's side. And I have been told that me and my family will be uh, baptized for within a year. A, a year after we are dead, then we will have that work. And we'll have missionaries come and visit us as well. After the millennium, there's the judgment. And you're going to go to one of three places. It would be called the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, or the telestial kingdom. The telestial kingdom is where evil people go. Adolf Hitler has had his work done for him in the London temple back in the 1990s. He will be able to go to the telestial kingdom along with evil people. Good people, probably most of you are considered to be good people, you'll go to the terrestrial kingdom. Well, here's the interesting thing. Most Mormons think that they're going to go to the terrestrial kingdom because they know they're not doing everything to be able to go to the celestial kingdom. The celestial kingdom is Godhood, and this is that second part of the couplet, as God is, man may become. According to Mormonism, the man becomes the God, his wife will become the goddess, and there will be additional wives that will be available, and they hope that they will be able to do the same thing that Heavenly Father did. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. That is, in a nutshell, basic Mormon theology and the idea of how a person is, what they want if they're a Latter-day Saint. The way to get to the celestial kingdom goes through the temple. That's why this building is so important. 
I went through that fast, but does that make kind of sense a little bit? You understand the basic idea? I'm just, I'm trying to give you what Mormonism teaches. I'm not trying to put too much uh, um, persuasion in there. I'm not, I, I just want you to understand what it is they believe. They believe in pre-mortality, mortality, and then finally there's going to be a future state, and that will be called the final estate. Okay, so we have that. Next uh, slide. Uh, this is LDS Apostle George Q. Cannon in 1871. He says, why is it that we are so anxious to build temples? It is that we may attend to ordinances necessary for the salvation of the living and dead, that we may be baptized for our ancestors who died without having the privilege of hearing and obeying the gospel. The main reason why they did baptism for the dead originally set up by Joseph Smith was so that the people who never heard of Mormonism would have that second chance. But most people in the United States, for instance, have heard about Mormonism. They might mock it. They might think of Mitt Romney. I don't know what they think of, but most people have heard of, of Mormonism. But it was originally the temple was so that those relatives in the past would have this uh, second opportunity. And so uh, as far as Mormon temples go, the next slide, for the living, uh, the idea is you get sealed. It's called sealing to spouse and family members. And by the way... If you take the tour, you're not going to get 90% of this information. The information I'm giving you is to a Christian audience, but do not expect them to tell you very much. And you can ask questions when you're all done. They have a room that uh, there will be some missionaries there, and you can ask questions, and they are going to be generic with you. And by the way, they are sworn to secrecy not to tell you exactly what's going on in there. But they hope someday to get sealed to their spouse if they've not already been sealed, as well as their family members. They believe families are forever. And this idea that families can spend uh, eternal life together. Uh, work here is done mainly on behalf of those no longer living. And that's why genealogy is so important. You know Latter-day Saints. Some of them are saying, they, I've heard Latter-day Saints say they trace their roots back to Adam. And so they know all the people. And so they're doing the work. They're required to know who those people are so they can do the work. So they have a chance to be able to get uh, to where they're hoping to go as well. As far as the LDS temple and the pattern of biblical days, Mark E. Peterson, an apostle, said, In biblical times, sacred ordinances were administered in holy edifices for the spiritual salvation of ancient Israel. The buildings thus used were not synagogues nor any other ordinary places of worship. They were specially constructed for this particular purpose. Notice this. Following the pattern of biblical days, the Lord, and again in our day, has provided these ordinances for all who will believe and directs that temples be built in which to perform those sacred rites. Key point, Latter-day Saints believe this is a restoration, this religion. Uh, Christianity died soon after the death of the apostles, according to Mormonism. And, and there was no authority. There was no priesthood authority. It was lost, and it was especially lost by the time of the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed, and, and they say it was completely lost by then. They, do, they reject the Trinity. They reject, I'm going to say, every single fundamental uh, uh, doctrinal issue in the historic Christian church. They deny or distort if they do say they believe in it. And they believe that the temple that was from Jerusalem is what they're doing today. They really do believe that. Now, they do believe in corruption of the Bible. The Bible is true only as far as it's translated correctly. So they believe there were changes made. And some of the things that the temple was about, 
is not being uh, accurately disseminated to you by your pastors. And so uh, they, they will make that claim. And so they believe this temple comes from, temp, uh, from biblical times. Uh, current President Russell M. Nelson, 96 years old now, says, Our Redeemer requires that his temples be protected from desecration. No unclean thing may enter his hallowed house. Yet anyone is welcome who prepares well. Each person applying for a recommend will be interviewed by a judge in Israel, the bishop, and by a stake president. So they have a pastor kind of person called the bishop. He's a volunteer, by the way. He works a full-time job, and he also serves uh, about 400 people uh, called the bishop. And the stake president is over different what are called wards, and he's in charge of them as well. So you have to go in for an interview every couple of years, and notice no unclean thing may enter his hallowed house. Why are you going to be allowed in right now? Because it has not yet been dedicated by M. Russell Ballard. But after that, nobody, even a Mormon in good standing, but does not have what temple recommend, is not allowed to enter. They will put booties on your feet when you go in, plastic booties. That is to protect the carpet. But it's also partly symbolic that we're on sacred ground. This is the temple. And, uh, and so they, they treat it very special, very sacred for them. Uh, and, uh, but to get in there, you have to have been a member for a year, and then you have to have this interview that takes place called a recommend interview. And some of the questions they're going to be asking you would be, one, they're going to ask you about your faith in God, Jesus, Holy Ghost, and Christ's atonement. Do you believe in that? You can go online and you can see these questions. There's about, I think, 16 or so. I'm just giving you a few. Uh, do you believe in the restoration of the gospel? Uh, because if you don't believe in the restoration of the gospel, then there's no need for the LDS church to be in existence. And by the way, the official name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I shorten it up to LDS church or Mormon church, even though the uh, leader, uh, Russell M. Nelson, uh, received a revelation in 2018 that you're not supposed to call it LDS or Mormon. You're supposed to call it by its full name. I'm not meaning any disrespect, but it's too many words for me to repeat over and over again. So I, I'll say normally LDS church. But the restoration of the gospel came through this church, restored the authority that was lost after the death of the apostles. Do you support the leaders? One of the things that if you say you do not agree with Russell M. Nelson on his view on LGBTQ, uh, if you don't agree with him on whatever the issue is, that could get you uh, a banned from getting this recommend card to be able to go inside. Do you live the law of chastity? If you're married, are you only having relations with your wife? If you're single, are you celibate? They're going to be asking you those questions. Uh, and then uh, not affiliated with anyone who is against the church. Probably not a good idea to be a friend of mine because they're going to say, he's an anti-Mormon. And I don't like that term because I'm not anti-Mormon anything. I love Mormons. I moved from Southern California in 2010 with my family, and I left a lot behind to be able to do this ministry full time. So, but th they would say, "Well, he's against the church." I'm, I'm a nice guy, and I'm not going to. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not against Latter Day Saints. I just I want them to know the truth, and that's why we're going to be outside, not just to argue or or, or be mean or anything like that. Uh, do you keep the word of wisdom? This is something that Joseph Smith was supposedly given by God, uh, DNC 89, in one of their four scriptures. Doctrine and Covenants 89 says that you are not allowed to have tobacco, um, alcohol, or hot drinks, which has been interpreted to be coffee and tea. So a good Mormon in, latter, in, in, in the uh, church is not going to drink 
anything like that. And so that's why that. Uh, they have to agree to that and obey it. Alimony, child support payments, are you up to date? Do you wear the temple garments? I'm going to show you the temple garments in a second, what they have to wear in order to be uh, a temple recommend holder. And then you have to confess your major sins. So you would tell that to your bishop or your stake president, and you need to get that all out so that they can know, is, are you because you're supposed to be righteous to be able to go into the temple. If you're not righteous, you're somebody who should never get a recommend, or you should have it taken away. Now, here's the question. What was the Old Testament temple for? Anybody, tell me, what was the main purpose? Anybody, what was it for? Sacrifice, yeah. Wasn't that the majority of things that were going on there? Absolutely. And here's the thing. It wasn't, it wasn't righteous people going. It was not righteous people who were going to seek forgiveness through blood sacrifices. And the beauty of the book of Hebrews tells you what the Old Testament temple was and how Jesus fulfilled the role of priest and how he also served the role as sacrificial victim. If you read Roman, or Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10... Very, very important chapters. Uh, and then I think about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, let's consider the New Testament during the time of Jesus, Luke 18 tells us the attitude of somebody who understood uh, their position. Luke 18, this is what it says, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You have to tithe to be able to go. The, I, I didn't put that in, but you have to tithe. And if you haven't tithed, they will require you to pay back tithing. It's called tithing settlement. For you to be able to go see your child get married, you have to have that recommend card because they do the ceremony inside there. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It's interesting. Jesus said it was the tax collector who went down justified, not the Pharisee. Now, I don't think Latter-day Saints intend to be Pharisees, but in essence, they become Pharisees because they have to follow all these rules to be considered just before God. And as you know, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. There you go. Lest any man should boast. I did this. I did that. Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 7 that there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, look at all the good things I did. And he's not going to know them. He's going to say, depart from me. And he's going to send them away. So this is serious business. If you think that your works are justifying you, that is not the case of what the Bible teaches. According to Mormonism, obedience secures the blessing. This is probably, somebody's been here. Did you go inside, who, who was, who's already been in? Did you go inside the room where the missionaries were? Or did you not go in there? Uh, at the end of the tour, you were allowed to go into the room and, and, uh, and they had missionaries there. You may not have gone in, but there's a room where, where uh, at the very end of the tour, outside the temple, when you go back to the main building, the stake center, uh, and, and so this is a poster that probably is there. It's in every single one I've been in in the last 10 years. In the temple, we promise to serve others and obey God's commandments. One of the things they do every time they go to the temple is covenant to God that they will keep all the commandments. How often? 
all the time. They also do that every Sunday. This morning, they took what's called the sacrament. Bread and water passed around like we would have communion, and they have to repent of their sins, and then they have to promise that they will keep all the commandments. So this is important in Mormonism. It's a very much works-oriented religion. It's a religion of do, 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 whereas Christianity is a religion of done. You know, that's, that's the difference between Christianity and Mormonism. So now that I've given you a background, I want to talk about the four main ordinances they're called. They're called ordinances, and the four main ordinances are washing and anointings, endowments, marriages, or what are called sealings for eternity, and baptisms for the dead. Those are the four main things that will happen in this temple. And you'll get a little bit of this from the tour, but not much. In fact, we're not sure how, I'm not sure how they're doing it. Most likely it's going to be a silent tour. You will not be allowed to ask questions inside the temple. Uh, if you went last week, if you were clergy or you're the media, they did have special people that would give you a spoken tour. So you'll, you'll be going through here and you won't have really any information. You're just going to see everything and then you have to go in that room at the end and ask questions and, and get limited answers. I guarantee you, you're not going to get very specific. So the washing and anointing rooms are off, off the, uh, the, the track. You're not going to get to see this, correct? You, did, you never saw the washing and anointing room. It is in the locker room. Did you go through the locker room? Uh, there was a locker room with lockers. Well, off to, uh, in the back area, there's a place where there's a room with a sink. It looks like a sink, and it has water. And that is where you have to prepare yourself to be able to do the rest of the ceremony. So it's called the washing and anointing room. This is what the Encyclopedia of Mormonism says. Washing and anointings are preparatory or initiatory ordinances in the temple. It's the first thing you're going to do. They, and, and you'll have this robe on, it's called. And, and so they signify the cleansing and sanctifying power of Jesus Christ applied to the attributes of the person and to the hallowing of all life. Women are set apart to administer the ordinance to women, and men are set apart to administer the ordinances to men. A commemorative garment is given with these ordinances and is worn thereafter by the participant. In the old days, they used to touch your body, your head, your breast, your thigh, which would signify your genitals, and then your feet. And they would touch each part and kind of give a little bit of a blessing to each. They don't touch anymore. Uh, the worker that's in there, but he is there to symbolically uh, bless your head, bless your breast, bless your, your genitals, and bless your feet so that you can do all the things that you were required to do in Mormonism, to be able to be a human being and to procreate. That's a big thing in Mormonism, to have family. Uh, and so uh, that would be the main thing of what goes on in there. And you will be wearing um, these garments. And I, uh, on this next slide, I, I show you... Uh, a picture of them on a table, and I don't—I mean, I, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I just want you to see what, what they are. The white undergarment worn by those members who have received the ordinances of the temple endowment is a ceremonial one. All adults who enter the temple are required to wear it. In LDS temples, men and women who receive priesthood ordinances wear this undergarment, so it's under their clothes, and other priestly robes. The garment is worn at all times. So even when they leave the temple, now they must wear this garment underneath after they've had the initiatory uh, uh, service the first time they've gone. So you wear it at all times. The robes are worn only in the temple. So you'll put those, put to, uh, those in the locker room. You'll get dressed. You'll put this white, uh, white dress on, white clothing on, 
And having made covenants of righteousness, the members wear the garment under their regular clothing for the rest of their lives, day and night, partially to remind them of the sacred covenants they have made with God. This is very important for a Latter-day Saint who is temple-worthy to wear. And so if you see a man wearing a white shirt, they like to wear white shirts and ties, and you'll see it kind of a circular thing, that is his top part. And he also has bottom parts. They're kind of like mini... Uh, long johns almost. And, but, uh, I mean, th- they are wearing those, women and men both. Uh, some are so strict, they'll even wear them to bed. They even will take them off in the shower and remove the, la- the dirty one, and then they'll kind of put on the new one. There's kind of, it's almost like a good luck charm for some people. Maybe not so much with the younger uh, generation, but certainly with the older. Uh, they treat it very sacredly. This is a picture of those, uh, the male on the left and the female on the right. That's kind of what they would look like. Um, and then uh, the next one, I want you to understand, there are Masonic emblems that are woven into them uh, called the, monk, uh, the mark of the compass, the mark of the square, the navel mark, and the knee mark. These are uh, uh, Masonic uh, symbols. So if you know anything about Masonry, much of this temple ceremony comes from Joseph Smith's time in Masonry. He was a 32nd degree Mason in Nauvoo, Illinois. So he took a lot of what the secrets were in Masonry and then he put them into his religion. And so when you're wearing that, you're wearing these special marks that come from Masonry. I don't suggest you ever talk to a Latter-day Saint and ask about this. This is very private. They will not want to talk about it. They're not allowed to talk about it. But just so you know, this is what they're, they're wearing underneath. And then during the, uh, the ordinance ceremony, the second lecture will say this. You have had a garment placed upon you, which you were informed represents the garment given to Adam and Eve when they were found naked in the Garden of Eden, and which is called the garment of the holy priesthood. That's the name of this. Uh, some people would shorten it to temple garment. This you were instructed to wear throughout your life. You were informed that it will be a shield and a protection to you inasmuch as you do not defile it and if you are true and faithful to your covenants. So a faithful Latter-day Saint will wear those. If he's not wearing them for whatever reason, then there's something going on. Uh, some people will take them off and not wear them anymore. They, they may be leaving the church. And we're seeing Latter-day Saints leave in droves. Unfortunately, they're not running to Christianity. of all Latter-day Saints who leave their church, and they're leaving, like I say, in droves, are going to atheism, agnosticism, or nothing at all. This this religion ruins them on on any kind of a faith. 44%, only 10% become evangelical Christians. That is too too few Christians and too many skeptics. And so that's one of the things. I'm writing a book right now that will be published next year by Harvest House called introducing Christianity to Mormons. We have to do a better job of explaining what Christianity is and not allow people to just be bitter and leave and have no hope whatsoever. Uh, The garments offer protection. Uh, Spencer Kimball, the 12th president of the church, said temple garments afford protection. I am sure one could go to extreme in worshiping the cloth of which the garment is made, but one could also go to the other extreme. Though generally I think our protection is a mental, spiritual, moral one, Yet I am convinced that there could be and undoubtedly have been many cases where there has been through faith an actual physical protection. So we must not minimize 
that possibility. A few years ago, back in the late 1990s, uh, Dan Rather interviewed um, Gordon B. Hinckley and talked about this, and so they interviewed uh, Mr. Marriott, the head of the Marriott chain, and he had a boat fire, and on 60 Minutes, he talked about how this protected him. His clothes were burned, and his garments saved him. Steve Young was interviewed, the quarterback for the 49ers at the time, and he said uh, how important those were to him, although he didn't wear those uh, during the games uh, because he felt it would desecrate them. But uh, anyway, these, off, these garments do offer the protection. Now, these are pictures of examples of what the white clothing called robes. The white part, men wear this like a chef hat and the white robe, and the women wear uh, this robe as well with, a, with this veil that they will have. And what they're wearing there in the green, that is uh, called the temple apron. Now, during the ceremony, they don't start that way with the temple apron. They just have their robes on. They're all in white. And, and then there comes a time in the ceremony, and it's all done on, on DVD. Uh, uh, there's a character who plays Lucifer, and he, he says, now it's time. I'm, I'm summarizing it. I'm not saying exact. But he says, it's time for you to put on your temple apron. So put on your aprons. So everybody dutifully listens to Lucifer and puts on an apron that's symbolic of the fig leaves that uh, Adam and Eve wore. So, uh, so that is part of this temple ceremony. So that's what uh, a female would look like. Sandra Tanner is a friend of mine. She has a ministry called Utah Lighthouse Ministry, has done this with her husband Gerald uh, since 1960. And uh, he passed away a few years ago, but she's 80 years old and still doing the Christian ministry. Let me give you a witnessing tip before I move on. I'm going to suggest that you don't ask your friends about what goes on in the temple because that's very awkward. Don't, don't go there because if you want your conversation to get awkward, then that's what you do. Say, what are you doing there? Uh, I would say, don't do that. Don't ask about these garments. I've told you what they are, but they're not allowed to talk about them, so don't put them on the spot. And, uh, and just so you understand, they'll say it's sacred, not secret. This is what the church website says. Their sacred nature is such that discussion and detail outside the temple is inappropriate. So, okay, everybody, let's, let's keep away from... I know it's kind of an interesting thing. You've learned about it. I wouldn't bring it up. I certainly would not use it in any kind of a witnessing situation because if you're, you have LDS friends, most of you have been invited by your LDS friends to go. Um, I would not uh, go there at all. That would be my advice. As far as it being sacred or secret, we have the website sacredorsecret.com and that gets a lot of notoriety. People will say, oh, it's sacred. Well, yeah, it is sacred. I, I fully get it. But it's also secret. Even one of their scholars, Richard Bushman, said this in 2008. While some members will claim that Mormon temples are sacred, not secret, Bushman said that temples are secret, plain and simple, noting that even members don't speak to each other about it. They're so careful, they won't even say to one another what goes on in there. And then during the ordinance ceremony, there's another lec a second lecture again. And he says, if you proceed and receive your full endowment, you will be required to take upon yourself sacred obligations, the violation of which will bring upon you the judgment of God. For God will not be mocked. If any of you desire to withdraw rather than accept these obligations of your own free will and choice, you may now make it known by raising your hand. So he's letting you know, before we tell you all of these special things, you need to know if you're not willing to keep this private, then you need to leave right now. And so you have the option, uh, you're, um, you have the option to stand up and leave 
and not go through that because you are making the promise when you go through there that you're not going to divulge anything. Now, before 1990, they actually would make blood oaths, called blood oaths. 1990, this is what they would say. I covenant before God, angels, and these witnesses that I will never reveal the first token of the Aaronic priesthood. I'll show you that in just a second. It's a handshake. With its accompanied name, sign, and penalty. Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. So they made a promise that was very literal before 1990. They changed it uh, just because I think a lot of their people were having a struggle with, uh, with making promises like that. And then before 1930, this is what they would say. We and each of us covenant and promise that we will not reveal any of the secrets, notice secrets, of this, the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should we do so, you would put your hand up like this. We agree that our throats be cut, and they would use their thumb, and they would draw it like this, and that we would have our throats cut from ear to ear and our tongues torn out by their roots. And then they would also make a promise that they would have their bowels disengaged if they were to ever talk about that, if they ever got caught. So that's the first part. That's the uh, Washington anointing room and some of the uh, things that they're doing with the garments. The second one is called the endowment. And I was quoting from the endowment ceremony. In a general sense, uh, the church website says, a gift of power from God. Worthy members of the church can receive a gift of power through ordinances in the temple that gives them the instruction and covenants of the holy priesthood that they need in order to attain exaltation or godhood that I was telling you about the final uh, the, the final state. The endowment includes instructions about what's called the plan of salvation. Now, I gave you the plan of salvation in that chart, but that's what the endowment is. You're going to learn about what this is all about. Uh, it comes from Freemasonry, as I mentioned. Joseph Smith said in 1842, I officiated as grand chaplain at the installation of the Nauvoo Lodge of Freemasons and at the grove near the temple in the evening I received the first degree of Freemasonry in the Nabu Lodge assembled in my general business office. It just took him a few months before he got to the 32nd and the top degree. Uh, Brigham Young, second president of the church, said, uh, you need the temple to get to the celestial kingdom. He said, let me give you a definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord. The temple is the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. A whole bunch of words have been used here. I'm going to share with you some of them, uh, uh, what, what he's talking about, because it's very esoteric. You have to have gone through. You don't learn about this before you go in. You learn about it when you go through the first time. You're going to learn all of this. It's going to be brand new to you, and you're going to have to learn these things if you hope to get to the celestial kingdom. So what are the things you have to know? Well, one is you and your wife is, are going to receive new names. That day in the temple, everybody receives the same name. Usually they're Book of Mormon or Bible names. So let's say everybody is called Mormon for the men, and the women are called Sarah. So I, as the man, need to remember that name, and I tell nobody. In fact, I'm not even supposed to tell my wife. This is a secret name that I have, and I get this new name. And everybody in that temple that day will have the same name. But when I die, I need to remember that. So I, as a man with the priesthood, because only men have the priesthood, am responsible to call my wife up from the dead. 
So that new name is very important. You're also going to have to learn some special tokens or what are really handshakes. I'm going to show you those in just a second. They come from Freemasonry as well. You learn those, and then you also, and here they are, they come from Freemasonry. Take a look. There's four of them. There's what's called the first and second token of the Aaronic priesthood, which is the priesthood that 11-year-old boys receive, and then the first and second tokens of the Melchizedek priesthood. These are Masonic handshakes. In fact, on the left-hand side, I show you what the Masonic handshakes look like, and then you can kind of compare. Maybe you go home and you can look a little closer, but there are, there's a sign of the nail on the first token of the Melchizedek priesthood, and there's these different names that they each get. Uh, and again, your friend is not going to ever be able to tell you any of this, but this is what the four handshakes are, and it does come from Freemasonry. So it's a very special thing. There is a curtain in the second room, the second ordinance room, where you have to put your hand in there, and there's somebody on the other side, and you have to shake their hands right for them to be able to qualify you to come through the curtain so you can go into the very best room at that place, the temple, the celestial room. Very pretty room. Um, very ornate, and so these handshakes are required. In fact, let me show you the rooms. This is Pocatello. This is, these are the pictures you would see if you go there. Uh, the first ordinance room, uh, this is where you're going to see that video. You're going to learn about the creation of the world. There's a Christian pastors involved, very interesting. Uh, Satan's there, Peter's there, Adam's there, and so you're going to watch this video. They used to do live performances at the Salt Lake, Manti, and St. George temples. Those temples are all closed now because um, they have, are remodeling, and they're not going to do any more live performances. They're all going to be on the DVD, and so this is performed by the church. That DVD is under wraps. Nobody's allowed to see it. You can't see it on the internet or anything else, but that's the first room. Men on one side, females on the second. Then there's a second room called the terrestrial room. There's that curtain I was talking about, so you're going to learn. You're going to um, you're going to you're going to talk about these uh, handshakes. You're going to learn them, and then you're going to put your hand. There's slits in those curtains, and you're not going to be able to touch the curtain when you go on the tour, but there are slits there where somebody on the other side will put their hand in there, and you will do these different handshakes so that you can get pulled through. And on the other side of the second ordinance room, excuse me, the, the second, uh, on the other side of the second ordinance room is the celestial room. This next slide, very beautiful. Very beautiful room, uh, flowers in the middle, couches. You, you go in there when you're done, and you just sit there and just think about celestial things. A lot of people have had uh, visitations from their loved ones in these kinds of rooms all over uh, the world. Um, and so you're looking for a spiritual whisperings uh, and just to be able to uh, participate in that. Uh, this is what was in the Deseret News on Friday. This woman used to be a pastor here in this area from Praise Temple of God. Her name is Mama, Big Mama. Have you, have, are you familiar with Big Mama? So she was interviewed on, uh, on Friday's paper. She went through on Thursday. I just want you to understand how easy it is to get, oh, this is a great building, and why am I out there for, I'm putting a lot of energy, time, money to be outside because... Now, she might be an extreme, but she's not. There's a lot of Christians who are going to go through and think this is a pretty cool thing. She felt welcome, she said, and right at home in the temple, according to the newspaper article on Friday. To use my language, it was just drop-dead gorgeous. It was just beautiful. I cannot find words to express how beautiful the temple is. Now, the Deseret News is an LDS paper, and they're going to include everything in there from this pastor. Uh, 
uh, I put pastor in quotation marks, but her favorite part of the tour was entering the celestial room, a place of quiet, uh, it should be not quite, but quiet peace, prayer and reflection meant to symbolize heaven. This last quote just got me. I felt the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As I began to close my eyes and just let the Spirit have its way, I began to see a vision of God or Christ. Wow. And she is not even LDS. Can you imagine what Mormon people are saying when they go in here? And so visions are seen here. Uh, all kinds of things happen in this room. Uh, because you've got to understand, a lot of the work being done here, again, is on behalf of the dead. I'll talk about more of that in just a second. The third thing they're going to do are what are called marriages or sealings. And this is 10th President Joseph Fielding Smith. Another thing that we must not forget in this great plan of redemption and exaltation is that a man must have a wife and a woman a husband to receive the fullness of exaltation. Marriage is a requirement in this religion. And oftentimes people get married by the time they're 20 or 21 in the church. They must be sealed for time and for all eternity in a temple. Not just for time, but for eternity. Your marriage, they will say, ends at death. Till death do us part, their marriages go past uh, this life and move into the next. Then their union will, be, will last forever and they cannot be separated because God has joined them together as he taught the Pharisees. Uh, this is the sealing room in Pocatello. And uh, it's a beautiful room. Uh, that has mirrors, and they're called eternal mirrors. You can look into the mirror, and it's tilted in such a way that you can see forever. And you see like 10 different versions of you. And so you will kneel at that altar, and you will... Um, uh, and this is what the officiator is going to say. Uh, Brother, do you take sister, whatever their names are, uh, by the right hand and receive her onto yourself to be your lawfully wedded wife for time and eternity with a covenant and promise that you will observe and keep all the laws, rights, and ordinances pertaining to this holy order of matrimony in the new and everlasting covenant. And this you do in the presence of God, angels, and these witnesses of your own free will and choice. So this is very important because this is where they are sealed. So after they die then the, the uh, um, and after they both say yes, let me read the rest of this. Uh, By virtue of the priesthood and the authority vested in me, I pronounce you husband and wife, legally and lawfully wedded for time and all eternity, and I seal upon you the blessings of the holy resurrection with power to come forth in the morning in the first resurrection, clothed in glory, immortality, and eternal lives, I seal upon you the blessings of kingdoms, thrones, principalities, powers, dominions, and exaltations. Now let me just say something about that. Because here's what he's talking about. Here's what's being said. When the first resurrection takes place, I die, my wife dies. I, as, what did I call myself? I forget what I called myself. Um, um, my wife was Sarah. I was, oh, Mormon. I'm Mormon. And so I, as Mormon, need to say Sarah. Not my wife's name is Terry, but if I'm a Mormon, she's been called Sarah. And then I'm responsible to take her and take her to heaven's gate, so to speak, to the gate of the celestial kingdom. And there, there will be an angel who will put out his hand. And I'm going to have to be able to say who my name is. I am, Mar- I am Mormon, and this is my wife, Sarah. And he's going to ask for those four handshakes. If I'm able to produce that and I was considered righteous, I then will be allowed to get into the very top of the three kingdoms of glory called the celestial kingdom. And so that is what's going on in there. Uh, The final thing is called baptism for the dead. Joseph Smith, uh, in the scripture Doctrine and Covenants, section 128, verse 17, he calls it the most glorious of all subjects, 
belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely the baptism for the dead. He said, those saints who neglect it in behalf of their deceased relatives do it at the peril of their own salvation. So imagine you have that responsibility to go do this work to get baptized on the behalf of your relatives, and if you don't do it, you'll pay the price. It's kind of a, okay, a little kick in the tail. I better go do this work. I better do my genealogy. I better make sure my relatives get baptized in the temple. Uh, this is uh, Gordon Hinckley, 15th president. He says, through living proxies, usually they're teenage kids. They, uh, they have to have... They have to be 12 years old or older, uh, and so oftentimes groups of teenagers will go to the temple just to do baptisms on behalf of dead people. And, and it says, through living proxies who stand in behalf of the dead, the same ordinances are available to those who have passed from mortality. In the spirit world, they are free to accept or reject those earthly ordinances performed for them. This is the spirit prison I was talking about earlier including baptism, marriage, and the sealing of family relationships. So not only do they do baptisms, but they do marriages on behalf of dead people and seal husband and wives, husbands and wives together uh, in their families. There must be no compulsion in the work of the Lord, but there must be opportunity. This is probably the most common rite that's taking place in the temple today. And this is, on the, this is the first thing you're going to see when you go past the recommend desk where they're going to check your recommends. You'll now have a chance to go see the, uh, the, the baptismal font if you take a tour. And, uh, and so you're going to see this. Um, uh, and I, sh I, I put this uh, back up again just to remind you to get to that celestial kingdom, that godhood part, you're going to have to go through here and you're going to have to, uh, and anybody who is in spirit prison in the middle bottom there, the intermediate state it's called, you're going to need a spirit missionary to come down and visit you. And so uh, that is why this work is being done. You need to have a physical body to be able to have that work done. And in the spirit world, you don't have a, uh, a physical body. So you are depending on your relatives to do this. And even if you don't have any relatives like I do, you still will have your work done for you, trust me. Everybody will get a chance to probably go to the terrestrial kingdom and no hell, really, in Mormonism. So they don't like the idea of hell, and so uh, Joseph Smith just disagreed with it. So, so it's not going to be the same. Uh, but Joseph Fielding Smith said that the baptismal font is just like the Jerusalem temple, is it? This is what he says, when this temple of Solomon was built, we read of a molten sea, 10 cubics, uh, it should be cu cubits, but uh, from one brim to the other, it stood on the backs of 12 carved oxen. This font or brazen sea was not used for baptism for the dead, for there were no baptisms for the dead until after the resurrection of the Lord. So he's claiming that the baptisms for the dead started in the New Testament period. Now remember, the temple's destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. So this would have only been about a 40-year period. But this is an interesting thing. This is what the baptismal font in Pocatello does look like. It's like a big jacuzzi, octangle, uh, and you have these bowls below, and, uh, and you'll have the picture of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. In fact, I want you to count how many times they have pictures of Jesus in the temple versus how many they have of Joseph Smith. They might just have, I haven't been in there yet. Am I right on that, ma'am? Uh, lots of pictures of Jesus. You, did you see a lot of uh, paintings of Jesus throughout? But, uh, but not too many of Joseph Smith. Very few you're going to find. They want this to appear to be a Christian place uh, of where things are happening. There's a picture right there, a painting of Jesus. Uh, on the back, you can see there, on the very bottom, 
You can kind of see the bowls. This is what they look like. Um, uh, this is not the Pocatello Temple. There's just two different versions. They can be marble. They can be steel. But they're on the, t the backs of these bowls. Uh, this is where you get this from. Second Chronicles chapter 4. It, the bronze sea, stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. He also made ten basins in which to wash, and set five on the south side, five on the north side. In these they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering. Sacrifices is the main thing happening in the temple, and the sea was for the priests to wash in. That was what it was for. That was why it was originally created in Solomon's temple. Uh, but we have to understand in 2 Kings chapter 16, King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the bases from them, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And then we have in 2 Kings 25, I won't read the whole thing because I'm running out of time, but I want you to understand that when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586 and destroyed the temple, they took this and carted it away. It wasn't even around for even the Romans to destroy, and it was never replaced. So this, this uh, washing uh, uh, facility here that was outside the temple was not around during the time of Jesus. In fact, this is a picture of the second temple. It did not have a bronze sea. There was a labor and a basin. They used that to... And not on the back of bowl. They just had this, this, uh, this thing that the priests could go in and wash when they were doing their sacrifices. They got all dirty, all bloody, and so they would wash in it. But it was never, ever used for baptisms. It's an argument from silence to say baptisms were ever done. Why would Jews do baptisms in their temple? They didn't believe in baptism. They didn't believe in Jesus. It makes no sense whatsoever. Anybody with a biblical history would say this sounds problematic. One of the things that they're doing in here, they're, 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 um, they're doing works on behalf of dead, and lots of dead people have appeared in different temples. For instance, in St. George, uh, the temple there, uh, appearances have been made by Christopher Columbus, John Wesley, William Shakespeare, all the deceased U.S. presidents, Albert Einstein, uh, numerous Holocaust victims, including Anne Frank. They're not supposed to be baptizing for the dead for Jewish people anymore, but that's been twice now they have been told not to, and they... They continue to do it, and now they're saying they're not doing any Jewish people for the Holocaust. But Wilford Woodruff, this is what he said, the dead will be after you, they will seek after you as they have after us in St. George. They called upon us knowing that we held the keys and power to redeem them. I think it's very scary to deal with dead spirits. I believe that there are spirits, and I think they're demonic. There are demonic things happening. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I will wrap this up. Um, Adolf Hitler has, has had his work done for him. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip this next part. If you would like to look at 1 Corinthians 15, I just want to hit this last part, and then I'll take whatever questions there are. Should I go on the temple tour? This might be a question you have. Well, that's an individual choice. I don't think your pastor's going to tell you what to do. or Maybe, I don't know. He's going to let you, if you want to go, you can go. I would say go or don't go. It's like eating meat offered to idols. You know, I mean, you know, you, that's a freedom of choice. You're going to have to make that choice. Uh, it's only open for five weeks, and then you will never be able to go in and again. So just so you understand that. If you do decide to go, this can be a great opportunity. I know a lot of you have been invited. 
I, for me, I would go if I had the opportunity to talk to them after and ask questions. And again, I'm not asking questions about what exactly goes on in there. Uh, but I would say, hey, would you mind answering some of my questions about the temple? And then maybe go to lunch and talk about those things. And there's all kinds of questions you can ask. The newspaper gives you some questions. You can check those out in the newspaper. I won't give you the four questions there. But... Um, I mean, there are, inside this, uh, it, it says, here are some questions you can ask on your tour if they allow you to do that. I'm not even sure which page that is. Um, uh, on the bottom, ask a Mormon missionary. So you can, on the back page there, you would be able to do that. So anyway, if you would like to have extra copies of this, I do have that. Also, we have our newsletter. It comes out every other month. We have copies of it in the back there. Feel free to take a copy of that. If you'd like to get a free subscription for two years, you can sign up for that. And so we deal with some of the cutting-edge issues. I went really fast. That's a lot of information. But do you have a little bit better understanding of what's going on in there? And that's not stuff you're going to be told at the temple. So at, on the tour, if you do take it. So anyway, what questions do you have? We have just a couple minutes. And... Is that okay? A couple minutes and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yes? There's a, what's called um, spirit, uh, uh, from spirit prison you're talking about? Yes, uh, when the missionaries come and present to you the gospel, even somebody like me, when I realize I was wrong and I'm in spirit prison, then I'm going to accept what the missionaries are going to say, and they're going to say, would you like to accept Joseph Smith and his revelation? I think I will. So you have to, you have to change your mind. If you decide not to, you're probably going to the Telestial Kingdom. Maybe you go to, um, there, there's, there is a place called Outer Darkness. It really is reserved for Satan and one-third of our brothers and sisters from the pre-existence. They're going to go to a place of complete darkness called... Um, uh, that's basically for eternity and, and not even to have one of the three kingdoms of glory. But generally, I don't think anybody is, who's smart is going to reject that. Yeah, so you do have to accept the, the gospel that second time. But even if you do that, if you rejected it here, you're not going to get to go to the celestial kingdom. Your best is probably the second level called the terrestrial kingdom where families cannot be together forever, where you'll have regret for the rest of your life you didn't become a Mormon. But you still have a pretty nice place to be in existence with. Other questions that you have? Yes? No, and girls too. They have to be approved. They don't have an official temple recommend, but they have to meet with the bishop and just to make sure that they're not having sex outside of marriage and doing drugs and things like that. But it's not the same as having that card. There's a card you're given that will be what you need to be able to get into the temple. So, yeah, they have to be approved, too, because it's a holy place. And only holy people, people who have been approved, are going to be able to go in there. And then you had a question? Yeah, yeah. So... The, Maybe in status. Uh, yeah, oh, I go to the temple once. So some students will wake up, um, like in, where I live, they have a sleep-in day. Uh, nine o'clock, they don't go to school on Tuesdays till nine. And so what happens is the temple opens up at six in the morning and receives all these students on Tuesdays. 
and they are full on Tuesdays doing all this work. And so they're literally going through a ritual and they're dunking them in that font that I was showing you and they, it takes about 30 seconds per person. There's a man with a computer who will be doing the computer work. They'll, do, they'll go through this whole thing. By the way, if you want to see the ceremony, uh, it's up to you if you want to see it. There is a, a Mormon who now is a former Mormon. His name is New Name Noah, one word, New Name Noah. And New Name Noah, um, if you go to YouTube, he has videotaped secretly all everything in there. And so uh, you can actually watch that. It's kind of boring. It's up to you if you want to watch that, but it is available on YouTube. I'm surprised this church hasn't figured a way to sue him because that is copyrighted information, but that's what... Sometimes they'll stay in there for 12 or 14 people, depending on how many people are waiting to get. And so they might just baptize them. 30 seconds later, they'll do it again. Yeah. Other times, there's a whole bunch of kids in there, and they'll just, they will take turns. But it takes time to get in and out. You know? And the water's warm and everything, but you know, it does take time. So if they have a whole bunch to do that day, but usually you're getting baptized as a child for one of your relatives. So if you, had four, you brought a list of 14 people, you're going to get baptized for them that day. You have that privilege to get do that work as an ancestor. Uh, other questions? Yes. Just, just a moment. Let me give a mic. So yeah. We can, we can hear you. I was just wondering uh, if they get married more than once, who are they going to call? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Real quick, um, uh, they have to have a temple divorce if they get divorced, and that will break the eternal marriage. I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. You, you get married for eternity, but it can be broken. And if it's broken, now they're free to remarry somebody else. Now, uh, Russell M. Nelson and um, uh, Dallin H. Oaks, he's the first council. These are the top two leaders of the church. Both were married to, to wives in the temple, and both of their wives died. They married another woman, and those, the women now are the second wife for eternity. They both will die uh, being able to take both of the wives in the next life. So, so they, and women can't do that. We don't believe in polyandry. The church would say, we don't believe in polyandry. We believe in polygamy in the next life. But polygamy not for this life, even though they're getting, they're not, they're getting married for time uh, to the wife as well as eternity both times. Question? And the mic's coming. Who created everything? Yes. Heavenly Father, God the Father created everything here. Uh, in this universe, but there are multiple universes. So that God before him, see God had a God before him, and then that God had a God before him, and going back, we don't know, they don't know anything about that, they don't have, it's a mystery to them, and so, but they know that God created this, and this universe. But there are multiple universes out there, millions, if not billions of universes. Uh, question over here, yeah, there's a mic. Family is sealed for eternity, then how can individuals in that family ever progress? That's a great question. That's a great question, and we use that all the time. Uh, the, the idea that you get sealed to your wife and your children, and you were sealed to your parents, well, who's going to be with who? And it doesn't make any sense because my children are supposed to get married to their spouses and they will have their own worlds. My parents, if they were faithful Mormons, should be in their own world. Really, to me, eternal marriage logically would only be you're married to your wife forever and your, your children and your parents and grandparents aren't going to be there because they're going to be in their own worlds. Now, I've heard it said, well, you know, you can just in an instant, you can be at your children's world. But that's, it's like living next door. If you say, I live with my parents, but I live next door, that's not really true. 
you live next door to your parents or you live across town from your parents. So whether I can visit them or not, I don't, but that's, it, it, it breaks down logically. So it's a mystery, I guess. Uh, question over here, and I don't know how much more time we have. If, if you do need to leave, feel free to, I'm not gonna be offended if you have to get out, but I'll take a few more until um, they take me out of here, so. Yeah, what role does like Ancestry.com play in the LDS Church? Because I know that you mentioned that there was a lot of genealogies, and obviously it would be hard to extrapolate all that information from all over the world. So what, um, what, what, what role does they, do these companies that we're seeing on TV that are asking you to send in your genealogy, what, what role are those playing? They're getting most of their information from the LDS Church. They have the best genealogical records in the world. They're constantly photocopying, putting it into their system. They've been doing this for years and years and years. There are hills in Utah where they hide. All, and there's a nuclear attack. They have it all inside the hills, all the, all the computer files and everything else. So even though it might not be a Mormon company per se, it is a, um, a, the information they're getting is coming mainly a lot of it, because the LDS Church is regularly bringing in records from China, from Europe, and they're they're doing it here in Salt. Well, here they're doing it in Salt Lake City. They they have a whole genealogical department that is responsible for all of that. So um, there's nothing wrong with doing genealogy. Some of you may like doing that. That's nothing wrong with it. But when you turn it into, I need to save. I need to, what they call a savior on Mount Zion. I'm going to be the one to save my relatives. That's where I draw the line and say. That's taking genealogy way too far, much more than what the Bible ever said what we should do. Uh, any others before? Yeah. So when they're doing the secret handshakes through the curtain, who are they shaking hands with? Are those like... Temple people, workers. Are they official? They are all the time like that's their job? They get paid to be there or what? No, they're, they're volunteers, <laughs> usually old, older people. Uh, and they're oftentimes they're retired and they're just uh, they volunteer. They know the whole ceremony. They've done it so long. But I'll just tell you this. I, I have talked to I know this one woman named Rowney Higley. She has a ministry like ours. She's in her 70s now. But she said because there are men behind there. And so uh, she would get uh, touched in ways that were inappropriate. Every she said every time I went, I would get touched in the wrong places. And uh, and so she felt they were just a bunch of dirty old men who were looking for being able to touch. And uh, so she, she was really bothered by that. Now, I'm not saying every single temple worker is doing that, but it, they're not usually uh, teenagers or 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds. They're oftentimes very old, uh, and they memorized everything. They know the, everything that there is about that temple. So they, all, they run that with volunteers. Is that their temple work? Well, that, that, that their volunteer work. And um, so they're not doing the work. The people are doing it. The, they're called patrons. The patrons are doing the work, and then they're just helping to facilitate that. Let's take one more, and then I will pr I promise I'll be in the back. Feel free to ask me more questions. Some of you hasn't had a chance yet. Or go ahead. Go ahead. Do that. Since, and then one more person who hasn't had a chance. I'm just curious if there's any benefit or anything that they get if they invite you to the temple opening, because that seems to be a big thing on our block that several people want to invite us. It's very important yeah. that they get that done. Uh, if you had a big event, like, for instance, um, in Idaho Falls, Billy Graham's organization is talking about doing a, a crusade there next year, you would want to tell people, too. And so I think it's genuine. They just, it's not like they're getting brownie points or anything. They just, they're so excited about this. They want to share it with you. And do you want to go or not? That's up to you. But if you might take up 
two or three of the neighbors and say, I'll go with you as long as we can go out to dinner. And I have a few questions. Use the newspaper questions. Just, just find out a little bit, you know, why do you believe this? And, you know, explain to me. Don't tell them what they believe. What you heard tonight, don't tell them this is what they believe. Say, why is the temple so important to you? What do you believe about God, Jesus, salvation by grace? They have the same terms we do, but different um, meanings behind that. And I would say use it as an opportunity for you to witness. If you, if you feel that way, if you feel that you could do that. So, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, think it's, I think it's natural that they would want to share with you uh, what's a very special building to them. They've been waiting years for this. It was announced in 2019, but before that, they've been talking about Pocatello for a while. Somebody who hasn't asked a question, one more, and then we'll be done. Anybody else who has not asked? 